Good evening. We'll start tonight's song leading with 438. My hope is built on nothing less. 438. We'll sing the first, second, and fourth verses. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but holy lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand.
Let's all bow together. Father, we're thankful unto you this evening for your mercy, for your grace. We're thankful, Father, for Jesus Christ. We're thankful for the fact that he came and lived in the flesh, the fact that he overcame every temptation that was put before him, the fact that he willingly gave up his life for us, shedding his blood. We're thankful for the power of his resurrection. In a world where there is a great deal of anxiety, fear, desperation, Jesus Christ gives us hope. And as your children tonight, we're so thankful for that hope, for the joy, for the peace that passes all understanding. We can rest comfortably tonight, no matter what may be going on in the world, knowing that you, God, are still in charge. You are still there. You've never left us, as you promised that you would never leave us nor forsake us. Father, may we be mindful of those around us who are caught up in the ways of the world, who are caught up in sin, who have no hope, who have no promise of being with you. May we open our hearts in compassion to them and open your word to teach them your truth. We pray for good works that are going on throughout the world, for good brethren who are spreading your gospel, not only here, but throughout the state of Georgia, the USA, and throughout the world. We know that your word will never return void or empty. We pray for the word to reach good and soft hearts. Father, we ask you to bless our country's leaders, and not only our country's leaders, but the world's leaders. We pray for them to lead us in a way that will promote godliness, that will allow us to live peaceable and godly and quiet lives. But we pray, Father, that no matter what, we will keep in mind our commitment to you, to honor you first, to honor our devotion and commitment to you first and foremost. May we love you more than anyone, more than anything. May that love and devotion show in our daily lives. Bless us to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth. We thank you for the time we have to study together this evening. We thank you for the wisdom of your inspired writer, Solomon. We pray that we will take heed and listen carefully and allow your word to sink deeply into our hearts, that we might not sin against you, but honor and glorify you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have not partaken of the Lord's Supper, if you could head to the back, the ushers will show you where to go while we sing 359, Jesus Keep Me Near the Cross. 359. We'll sing the first, second, and fourth verses. <clears throat> Jesus, keep me near the cross. There's a precious Yeah. 
6, 8, 4. We'll sing the first, second, and third verses. This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can feel that. Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 8 as we continue this investigation into this book of wisdom. That's Ecclesiastes chapter 8. And we're going to begin by reading the first nine verses. Who is like a wise man and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the sternness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's commandment for the sake of your oath to God. Do not be hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand for an evil thing, for he does whatever pleases him. Where, where the word of a king is, there is power. And who may say to him, what are you doing? He who keeps his command will experience nothing harmful. And a wise man's heart discerns both time and judgment, because for every matter there is a time and judgment, though the misery of a man increases greatly. For he who does not know what will happen, so who can tell him when it will occur? I said that wrong. For he does not know what will happen, so who can tell him when it will occur? No one has power over the Spirit to retain the Spirit, and no one has power in the day of death. There is no release from that war. And wickedness will not deliver those who are given to it. All this I have seen and applied my heart to every work that is done under the sun. There is a time in which one man rules over another to his own hurt. Tonight we're going to study this chapter, and this first section is quite interesting. Uh, I'm going to. Jay, would you like to get us started with your thoughts on uh, th this first section? Al for graciously sending me, uh, throwing me under the bus like that. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verses 1 through 9, okay? So let's start. The, one of the first things I noticed, I love the way it, it talks about a wise man's face light, lighting up. Go back to verse 1. Who is like the wise man and who knows the interpretation, interpretation of a matter? A man's wisdom shines or illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. The, when I think about that, the first thing I kind of think about is the, the joy you see in a child's face when you ask a question that they know the answer to. 
you know, sometimes you're, you know, I'm teaching class and I'm asking questions and, you know, some people know, but you can tell when you ask a question, someone is proud that they know the answer to that. And they shoot the hand up, especially when you're, you know, teaching elementary school age. And they are, they're, you know, they're, before the hand is, hand is up, they're blurting out the answer. You can see the joy that that wisdom has given that, that student or that child. And that's kind of what I get from verse 1 is when, when we have this wisdom that maybe comes from above or whatever it may be, it can bring joy to our life that when we're able to use it. And so I think there's a bit of a purpose that we find in verse 1. You know, this, this is Solomon's great pursuit here in the whole book of Ecclesiastes is what is the purpose of everything. And he's trying to do that by finding, you know, seeking wisdom and pursuing it. And I think one of the answers to that is having godly wisdom, or as James would say, wisdom from above, can give us joy because it can give us answers to tough questions. We've all been in a moment where it's pained us that we didn't have an answer. Or it hurt us not to know how to respond to someone. But thankfully, we don't rely just on our wisdom. I don't have to find all the answers to, to the things in my life based on what I know. I can, I can go to God and I can seek His wisdom and seek His counsel. I can go to the other people in this room for the same thing. So before even getting into the, the government issue here, verses 2, through uh, 5, I think it's important to note what's going on in verse 1, the joy that wisdom brings in, can bring into a person's life. And then he moves into verse 2, and, I, and we've got to keep in mind here as he's admonishing people to listen to the word of the king that, who is saying that? It's the king, right? It's like your parents quoting you that verse, you know, honor your father and mother, Jay, right? You know, because, okay, I get it. And so it's, it's comical to me, of all people, for Solomon to really be encouraging this in this matter. Verse 2 through 5, he, he hones in on the same concept, I think, that Paul is going to get to in Romans chapter 13. And I think all of us may have comments on this, but in summation, I think it's important to note that this concept, this precept that God has given to to man multiple times now is found both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And I think it might be easy for us to see Rome, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and say, okay, well, we need to honor the king when the king has been really chosen by God, right? We need to honor the king when the king is the middleman between God and man really at this moment, having Saul, David, and Solomon here. It's easy for a week, you know, it's easy to answer Ecclesiastes chapter 8 to honor the king and do what he says when he's religiously, you know, affiliated with God in a more, you know, maybe a closer manner. But this same exact mindset is echoed in Romans chapter 13. I think we have to come to terms with that as well. When the leaders that Paul is referring to is the exact opposite. Has no affiliation with God. Has no true holy purposes in their life at all. So I think that's important to note. Um, I, may, I may have a little more to say on that. I can, can come back uh, on that. Down in verse 8, No man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind, or authority over the day of death, and there is no discharge in the time of war or of this, or of this war, and evil will not deliver those who practice it. All this I have seen and applied my mind to every deed that has been done under the sun, wherein a man has exercised authority over another man to his Hurt. Once again, yes, Solomon might be kind of saying this about himself, but I think really he's, he's making this decree for all the kingdoms and all people living under authority in his day and age because he ends this section in verse 9, this thought, where he has seen oppression by the hands of authority. The end of verse 9, a man has exercised authority over another to his hurt. And even though that Solomon has seen that, has recognized that, his admonishment, his encouragement here is still, heed the words of the king. And I think that's interesting. And I think it's, um, you know, ben, ben, you may want to touch on this more. We, we briefly mentioned this before the study tonight. Don't you love to see how God's word reveals itself at the perfect time? How many of us have been in an auditorium, have been in a class, have been, have been reading your Bible in on your personal time and come across a passage that was so timely and so best suited for what was going on in your life or what was going on around you? And I don't think it's a coincidence that we might be coming across this passage tonight. You know, there's so much to be said about uh, this passage as a whole, but even within verse 1 itself, there's so much that could be said 
about these very few lines. And this morning, I believe it, Kyle was talking about how we need to let others see our uh, good deeds, our faith, our righteousness. And we talked about that this morning because why? Because it's important for others to see that so that God can be glorified, right? So we talked about that a lot. And I believe we have a connection to what we were talking about this morning and what we're talking about tonight in verse 1 itself. We can see that Solomon is saying wisdom can be seen. It is visible. It is a thing that can be apparent when you come across it. When you see wisdom, it's not a question of whether you've seen it or not. You know you've seen it, and you know what it is. It's a very visible trait. Uh, it's not something you're confused about if someone has. Uh, you, you don't go to somebody, have a conversation with them, leave, and, and wonder to yourself, you know, I wonder if they had wisdom, or they, if they have wisdom. It's something you know after talking to them, you walk away and you go, wow, that person is really wise. That person has a lot of wisdom. Wisdom is not something uh, that you can't see. It is something that you definitely can see. That's what he says. Solomon, you know, the second wisest man who ever lived, is sitting here saying in this text tonight that wisdom is what makes a man or a woman that is wise, that's what makes their face shine and changes the sternness of their face. Wisdom is that trait that changes them. And we have to understand that when we as Christians don't approach a situation, uh, a conversation, a confrontation, when we don't approach these with wisdom, with patience, with love, with discernment, with the fruit of the Spirit that the Christians should should have, it's obvious that wisdom is lacking. And it's apparent and it's visible. The same way you can walk away from a conversation and go, wow, that was a wise person. You can also walk away from a conversation and go, wow, that person lacks wisdom. And so I think it's important for us as we study this book of wisdom to understand that wisdom is supposed to be a visible trait. It is supposed to be especially a visible thing among God's people. And so the same way we have those conversations where we walk away and we're like, wow, you know, I wish I had better wisdom in that situation, or I wish they had had more wisdom in that situation. We all need to understand that if we're going to be wise, it needs to be a visible trait within us. And sometimes when we have these conversations, these confrontations where the person seems to be lacking wisdom, It's not because they're necessarily trying to be unwise or trying to be rude or trying to be uh, mean or trying to be whatever the case might be. It could just be because wisdom is not there. Wisdom is not there making their face shine and making their face beam, as the text says here. And when it comes to the government conversation, I believe verse 6 is very important for our understanding of what's going on here. It says... Because for every matter there is a time and a judgment, though the misery of man increases greatly. And so when we're talking about, you know, verse 2, verse 3, don't be hasty to go from His presence. Uh, Keep the King's commandment for the sake of your oath to God. Do not take your stand for an evil thing, for He does whatever pleases Him. And the, the text goes on as Jay was saying so prudently to what we're dealing with in these days. We have to understand verse 6 is why he is saying this. The same way he said back in chapter 3, there is a time, there is a season for everything. He's saying here again, there is a time for judgment. For every matter there is a time and judgment. And so it might be hard for us to understand Because sometimes when that happens, the misery of man increases greatly, the text says. Even though the government might be doing things and might be uh, doing things we don't agree with and we don't understand what's going on, we have to understand that even though the misery of man is increasing greatly, we have to understand that every matter there is a time and judgment. Someone might come to this passage, especially in our current context and not understand and be a little bit confused thinking 
Why can't I stand? Is this saying this, we shouldn't take stands against evil? Is this saying we shouldn't fight evil authorities? Well, I believe Solomon is just warning the congregation of Israel, this assembly of Israel, that this might be a futile fight. In some cases, in some scenarios, it might be a fight that, as he has said over and over throughout our text, is vanity. Why? Because it may take your attention away from God, who is king, and place it on men who live under the sun. And as we've discussed all throughout our study this quarter, or it's almost a quarter, we've been in Ecclesiastes for eight weeks now. But just as we've said over and over again, when we place our emotions, when we place our expectations under the sun, we are bound to be disappointed. When we look at a certain city or a certain ruler or a certain you know, position of authority and expect that they are going to be living godly lives and lives above the sun, we're going to be disappointed because they do not live above the sun, they live under it. And whenever you're allowing evil and you're focusing on the people who live under the sun, whenever you're allowing them to distract you from what really matters, that's when Solomon is saying this is a futile fight and it is vanity. So when it comes to life under the sun, verse 9 says it all. There is a time where one man rules over another to his own hurt. And just like with the rest of the book of Ecclesiastes, these are universal truths. And these are facts of life from a man who knew what he was talking about, as Jay was saying. This is things that they were definitely going to be dealing with in the very near future as Israelites as different nations and different rulers would come and would take over and put them into captivity. And he's trying to warn them before he leaves, if this happens, this is how you should respond. And know that for every matter, there is a time and a judgment. So that's what I think is happening here when he's talking about submitting uh, to rulers in this text tonight. Um. Uh, I would like to bring up a little bit different view of this chapter uh, from you know, uh, other ministers. But uh, saying the same thing, but I would like to uh, focus on some uh, interpretation uh, thing here. Verse 1, who is like the wise is from Hebrew, Hebrew text. But uh, I, did, I didn't understand very well what it means. So I looked up the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew text, and the Septuagint uh, means who knows the ways that lead to wisdom. So what uh, the author is talking about is, uh, by this verse is that you know, uh, there is a wisdom that we need to reach uh, and so we have to know, we want to know the path or the way to reach the wisdom. But the text says, who knows? So nobody knows. So uh, by the verse itself, uh, it gives us an idea that there is a wisdom. I mean, there are two wisdoms. One wisdom is that the wisdom that we can get under the sun. But the other wisdom is that it's not reachable. So we can reach. So who knows the path that leads to the wisdom, leads to the uh, wisdom. And the uh, third row says, a man's wisdom makes his face shine. A man's wisdom makes his shine. And the second I mean, the last row of the verse 1 is the hardness of his face is changed, but the Septuagint says, shamelessness is detested or hated by his face. In other words, if, one, if a person obtains the wisdom and it, it is seen by his face, and his face will detest the, the other shames, 
and the wisdom, in other words, the wisdom will let the person avoid the shames. In other words, the wisdom will give him life or eternal life, if he will. So we can, uh, I mean, this is the very, uh, the very thing that makes understanding the book of Ecclesiastes very difficult, that there are two wisdoms that the author is talking about, but the same word is used. For example, if you look at the last verse of this chapter, it says, uh, the, the last sentence, however much men may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So this book is uh, promoting the idea that we have to have the wisdom. But it also says, at the same time, it says that nobody can get the wisdom. So there are two wisdoms, I think. So what is the ultimate wisdom? Let me call the wisdom that we have to reach, we have to get, even though we cannot get the wisdom that we want to get, but there is a wisdom that we have, we can get. And the wisdom, the author is really emphasizing that we have to get, we have to get, and also we can get is the wisdom that, uh, that we have to get for us to have the eternal life. And I think this chapter is all talking about that. The first thing is to keep the king's commandment. We don't know what commandments he is talking about uh, in detail, but we know. But anyway, that is the wisdom. And also, uh, verse 12, verse 12, it says, I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. So that is the ultimate wisdom. Even though we, don't, we may not know the old details of the wisdom that we want to reach, uh, thinking that the wisdom will lead us to the wisdom, the ultimate wisdom, but the very simple wisdom give us the life, will give us the life. And the very simple wisdom, uh, which I call ultimate wisdom is to fear God and command, I mean, keep his commandment. As we know, as Kyle uh, already mentioned as we started this book, that is the theme of this book. That is the goal that the author is uh, leading us to, to understand. So I think, uh, I mean, this is my idea that, you know, we need to probably to understand this book better, we need to have the idea that there are two wisdoms that this author is talking about, and the ultimate wisdom is the wisdom that we have to have, not the wisdom that Solomon pursued, uh, I mean sought in his life. Uh, the, the last verse of this uh, chapter and also the pre in the previous chapter in chapter 7 he said you know I sought wisdom all my life but that was very deep and far from me so I couldn't understand it I couldn't I couldn't get it but so that is another main thing that this author is telling us as the one who already put his all efforts to pursue that there is in vain, it's vain. But this is the wisdom that you have to have, and, it, and it's enough. Fear God and keep his commandment. I think that is this chapter is talking We have spent plenty of time on this section, but I can't ignore verse 2 before we move on. Because these guys have said a lot of great things about, about wisdom, and, and they've made reference to what is said here about government. Um, but let's talk about verse 2 for just a quick moment. Let me make a, a few points. One thing I've noticed in my ministry career is that the, the one sermon topic 
that I'll hear the most comments on is when I preach about the Christian's relationship to government. I've been in ministry only since 2004. That's not really that long of a time, but I am sitting up here with a ministry staff that, other than, well, that I might be the most tenured minister on this staff. Uh, So that's a a little embarrassing. But (laughs) I've been in ministry during the terms of four, well, four presidents at this one, two, three, at the end of this month, four presidents. So it doesn't matter when I preach a sermon on the Christian's relationship to government, somebody's not going to like it. And you know what? I've preached the same sermon every time. In fact, I can give you my notes. <laughs> I don't try that hard. Just kidding. Well, at least Jay laughed. <laughs> Here's the thing. God's word never changes on the subject. Go to Romans 13 and look at what what is said there very quickly. Jay alluded to it already. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. The first verse is echoing the very thing that Solomon says in chapter 8, verse 2 of Ecclesiastes. Solomon says, keep the king's command. Why? Because of your oath to the Lord. Romans 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Keep the king's command. Be subject to the governing authorities. Why? Because there is no authority, Romans 13, verse 1. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. In in other words, Paul is saying, just like Solomon that the reason you are subject to governing authorities is because God's ultimately in control. Now, flip over to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17 is is going to be my focus. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 through verse 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. This is verse 15, 1 Peter chapter 2. This is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. See, whether we're looking at Proverbs chapter 8, I'm sorry, Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 2, where Solomon is saying, keep the king's command, or we're looking at Romans chapter 13 and verse 1, where Paul is saying, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, or we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, where Peter's saying, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. All of them are saying the same thing, that the, that, that the, the follower of God is expected to be obedient even to human institutions. And here's the thing that always gets me. Solomon is saying that, but he's not limiting it to just his reign. And there's going to be some really horrible kings that come after him. One of them being his very own son. And when Peter and Paul wrote the words they wrote, it wasn't really a great guy sitting on the throne as emperor. There were a lot of horrible emperors that came during their time period. The point for us is that it doesn't matter who sits in the overall office. It doesn't matter which party has reign over Congress. It doesn't matter. Because the king of kings reigns eternally. And if we will wrap, wrap our minds around that, that God sits on the ultimate throne, it won't matter to us. It won't matter one bit who gets elected. And I say that not because of this election. I say that because in my short ministerial career, I've seen it change from one party to the other who has power in the Oval Office, who has power in the Senate, who has power in, the, the, in Congress. I've seen it change. But this doesn't change. God's Word does not change on this subject. And we should add this one other thing. 
When you look at 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 17, it's very interesting to me. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Honor and fear are not the same thing. To honor is to be courteous and respectful. To fear is to be awestruck. And when these instructions come down to us in 1 Peter 2, verse 17, it calls on us to respect civil authority, but it calls on us to have reverence for God. It calls on us to, um, to give some level of, of admiration, if you will, to civil authority, but veneration to God. And it's so very interesting that Peter will say, honor everyone, and then conclude with honor the emperor, because what he's doing is he's saying, hey, remember that whoever's in a position of civil power is just a man. And the way you treat him, the same expectation exists for all men, but God is different. God deserves fear. And that means that whenever, whenever, our obedience to civil authorities comes in conflict with obedience to God, we're expected to make the same choice every time, that obedience to God takes precedence. Think about those Hebrew midwives that Ben taught about a few weeks ago. What were their names again? Because I can't remember. Pua? Shipra, Pua, and Jehoshaphat. But Jehoshaphat was later. Joash, yeah. Yeah. Think about those Hebrew midwives we read about in Exodus chapter 1. They defiled Pharaoh's order to kill all the male newborn babies because they feared God. Or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel chapter 3, they refused to worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar erected because to do so would have been in violation to the command to not bow down. And Daniel, Daniel chapter 6, refused to stop praying openly to God at his regularly scheduled times, despite the fact that King Darius had signed a decree forbidding his subjects from praying to anyone other than him for the next 30 days. And he did it because obedience to God took precedence. And Peter himself, in Acts chapter 5 and verse 29, when civil authority told him not to preach the name of Jesus anymore. He said, we must obey God rather than men. So I know I've taken up a significant amount of time, and we haven't even gotten out of the first section yet. But we need to be reminded of these things. That regardless of what civil government looks like, we're still expected to operate in a fashion of subjection, But our relationship to God, our obedience to God, will always take precedence. You know, Kyle, it's either either the sweat or your wisdom, but your face is shining after that segment. That was really good. (laughs) I really appreciate it and your courage to say the things you said because, you know, it's not easy to talk about such uh, touchy subjects. And uh, I just, you, you encouraged me tonight. Well, thank you. Are you guys ready to move on to the next section? Yes, sir. All right. I like that. (laughs) Chapter 8. Let's look at verse 10 through 13 together. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. Guys, what are y'all's thoughts on this section? You know, verse 12 for me is really the the thing that uh, helps me as we talk about the world that we live in under the sun. Remember back in our study last week, I believe it was, uh, in verse 15, he talks about the, the just man that perishes in his righteousness and the wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. And here's another verse that talks about the same kind of theme in verse 12 of chapter 8. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God 
who fear before Him. You know, sometimes when we look at this life, and we simply cannot understand why sinners prevail. We ask the question, God, why would you let this happen? Why would you let sin prevail? Why would you let sinful people prevail? Why would you let this person win this office or government or whatever we were just talking about? Why would you do that? Why would you let sin and evil prevail? But I think Solomon is bringing that part up of the, of the equation just to bring up the other half of the equation, which is when it comes to God's people, Solomon is trying to reassure them that even though a sinner can sin a hundred times and his days are prolonged, when it comes to God's people, we shouldn't spend our time thinking about their sin that's being prolonged. When it comes to God's people, we shouldn't spend our time worrying about the severe, egregious wickedness of others. Instead, we should start worrying about, not excuse me, not worrying about, start praising God for how He is going to reward us. Because He says in verse 12, I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear Him. So instead of thinking about and spending all of our time focusing on the evil of others, the egregious miscarriages of righteousness that are taken by others, instead we should praise God because Solomon promises us that it will be well with those who fear God. We shouldn't worry about the prolonged days under the sun that the evil get. We should be focused on the prolonged days above the sun. The eternal days that Christians get. What a great message for us to think about tonight. And this, this promise of prolonged days above the sun is only given to those who are in Christ, who are followers of God, who fear God, the text says. You know, life prolonged on earth under the sun, verse 13, is described as a shadow. It's just a shadow. We get a life above the sun is full of light, that is full of eternity, and is full of God. So if you worry about those who are getting their life prolonged here on earth, it may be time for you to start thinking about the prolonged days that are ahead of you in heaven as we deal with all the things going on in our life each day. And as Mingu pointed out, you know, verse 12 kind of gives us a uh, precursor to what the purpose statement of the whole book is in chapter 12, verse 13. I've heard the conclusion of the whole matter, to fear God and keep His commandments. This is man's all. Well, back in our text tonight, chapter 8 and verse 12, I believe he's saying this precursor. He's giving us a, 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 a little look inside of what he's about to say by saying, don't worry about the prolonged days of the evil. Think about the prolonged days above the sun for God's followers who fear God. That's what I got out of the three verses. There is a very interesting thing to uh, talk about here in verse 12. Uh, if I read it again, it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him. So it will be good to those who fear God because they fear God. So the, it's like, think about this a little bit, you know, deeply. Then, fear God is everything. Fearing God is everything. There is no other thing. Fearing God is solely the thing that is enough, is sufficient to be good in the day of judgment. And I think it is also it gives us the idea to understand um, chapter 7 verse 18 the last uh, last part of the verse better for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them he was talking I mean, the author was talking about the overly righteous people or overly wicked people but the conclusion of the verse uh, the section is that you know the one who fears God shall come out from both of them you know those who fear God can come out from wicked people and also from uh, the righteous people. You, we know that Jesus already pointed out that you know, 
the first will be last and the last will be first. So we don't know yet who will go to heaven ultimately. On the day of judgment, who will get to heaven, who will not? We don't know. That's what uh, Solomon is talking about here. We don't know God's ways. What will become about us? We don't know yet. But the only thing which is sufficient and enough for us to know and to do for us to be safe to be saved is to fear God. So that's why I think verse 12 has a very a bit weird uh, sentence. It will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. So fear God is central. That idea is very central. And I think that is, uh, to understand it is very significant to understand <clears throat> this book. Yeah, the two things I noticed kind of piggybacking off of that is um, this concept of fearing God. I think there's an important thing to note right at the bottom of verse 12. It says, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, comma, who fear him openly. I like that that last comment is added to that, that it's, it's not maybe just enough to fear God, but to fear him openly or fear him before him. And so I think it goes back to like Ben was saying in verse 1, it comes to wisdom that not only our wisdom should be seen among other men, but our reverent respect and our, and our, I think that's the correct word, the fear we have in God should be seen in our conduct and our life. So how do we do that? You know, I think it's no coincidence that every time there's a summation of what our purpose is in life or any time that what is it a Christian's purpose is, that the, this idea of fearing God is at the heart of it. So how do you fear God openly? Well, I think that looks differently sometimes for me than it does for you. We may, we may all fear God differently in our lives based on the situations we're in. I fear my God when I choose Him over my influence, maybe. I fear God when I choose a harder path that leads me maybe closer to Him when I could have chosen an easier path. I fear God when I choose to do the right thing instead of doing the easy thing. I fear God when I choose to do the right thing over maybe what, how it will affect how people see me. That's how I fear God, and not just fear Him you know, emotionally and mentally between me and Him, spiritually, but openly. So I think that's something we have to all wrestle with in our own lives. How do you, in your individual life, how do you fear God on a day-to-day -day basis so that other people can see your fear for, the, for your God? And the last thing, I like the example he used in verse 13 as we move on. I kind of run out of time. It will not be well for, for the evil man. He will not lengthen his days, like which, like a shadow. And so I like this intended contradiction that Solomon uses, because you look back in verse 12, he says the exact opposite. Does evil a hundred times may lengthen his days or may lengthen his life? So why in the very next verse he says, well, he doesn't lengthen his days. It's, it's like a shadow. I think we have to think what a shadow does. As the sun is setting, the shadow does lengthen and it does get longer. But what happens eventually? It fades away because there's nothing to it. There's no substance to it. It may get larger and larger as far as the sun goes down, as more as, as, more as the sun sets. But you never can grasp it because there's nothing to it. So on one hand, yes, the evil may lengthen, lengthen their days because of their mass of wealth, their mass or whatever it may be. They may have a better life, but in actuality, they're not lengthening their days above the sun, like Ben was pointing out, because there's nothing to that shadow of a life that they're living. So those, those are my two quick thoughts on this section. Well, for the sake of time, let's continue on. Let's go from verse 14 through the end of chapter. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, and there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity, and I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the, under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this, is, excuse me, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Something that stands out to me here in, the, in verse 14 and 15 in particular is that Solomon points out that life isn't fair. That there are righteous people who 
who receive what wicked people should receive and wicked people who receive what righteous people should receive. And I think we've all experienced that at some point. That life isn't fair. And because life isn't fair, he says, this is what I commend. Joy. I think joy is too often overlooked as a necessity of life, as a command of the Lord. See, I I pointed this out in in a series we did back in the summer last year. Joy is a choice you make. Because the Bible never commands us to be happy, but it does command us to rejoice. It does command us to produce a fruit called joy. And the reason it does that is because joy, unlike happiness, is not circumstantial. Joy is not dictated by what's happening in your life. Joy is a constant state of mind. And so we're called to pursue, to bear, to have joy. Life's not fair. Because life will never be fair, The one thing you should go after is joy. Because joy is not contingent on circumstances that aren't fair. Guys? You know, we started this section off in the beginning of the chapter by noting how wisdom is visible, it's attainable, it's apparent. Uh, But in verse 17 here at the end of the chapter, he concludes it by saying, even though we can have wisdom, we cannot have the wisdom that God has. In that, we do not have the amount of wisdom that God has. Because our minds, our understanding, our knowledge is finite, and we cannot grasp God's mind, which is infinite. And when it comes to how infinite God is, we cannot understand it. And so I begin to thought, uh, think back to uh, something David Shannon said one time. I don't remember where or when it was, but I remember what he said, and it was very wise. He's talking about God and everyone wanting to try to understand God. I'm trying to explain God. I'm trying to understand everything about God. He said, if you want a God that you can explain and understand fully, then you're not talking about the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible exceeds our ability, our understanding, and our knowledge. I don't have to have God explained or understood fully for me to follow Him because that's what makes Him God and what makes Him worthy of my worship and my discipleship and my obedience. This is the God that we serve and the God of verse 17. We cannot find out the work that is done under the sun when it comes to God. For though a man labors to discover it, yet he will not find it. Moreover, though a wise man attempts to know it, he will not be able to find it. That's the God that we serve. An infinite God that we don't need explained. And we don't have to understand everything. Because, as the Bible says, His ways are above our ways. And His thoughts are above our thoughts. That's what it takes to have real wisdom. Wisdom to know that you're not going to have the wisdom that God has. Uh, Adding to that, um, why do we fear God? What's the attribute of God that makes us fear Him? Because He's the judge. He is the only one who will judge us whether or not we can go to heaven or hell. So That's why we have to fear Him. Because he has all power. I mean, nobody else has the power to judge us. And the judgment will not be as we think or as we want under the sun. Even though we think that we are righteous, the judgment will be different. I mean, can be different. Even though we think we didn't do something very correctly or right, but still... We have hope because God, God's view is different. God sees us differently that we see. I mean, that uh, uh, from the way that we see. So that's why we 
uh, fear God because he's a judge. And that idea gives us another idea about what this uh, section and this chapter is talking about. The life under the sun is not the whole life of a person. And our life is much bigger and longer and, uh, and greater than the life under the sun. And for us too, our whole life, our eternal life, good, uh, for us to make it good, then we have to fear God because He is the one who will give us the eternal life. Any last story? All right. Thank you, gentlemen, for sharing your thoughts and thank you for participating with us in person and online. We want to close out this time of study with a prayer. Let's go to God. Our Father in heaven, we approach you now as we conclude this evening, grateful that we've had the opportunity to study your word, grateful that we have this wisdom literature uh, to consult and to examine and to apply to our lives. It is our prayer, Lord, as we leave here tonight, that we will uh, live with... with, uh, live a life that, that fears you and keeps your commandments. Help us, Lord, to live up to your expectations and, and your commands and help us to represent you the way we ought to in this world. May we make you proud with the way that we go about our lives. We love you, Lord, and it's through your son's name we pray. Amen.